everyone's seen the tragic images of the pelican that's completely drowning in crude oil and it's covered with petroleum from beak to tail and uh, and that certainly happens initially surprise we were watching the images on the news and and couldn't believe that we were watching this much oil pour out into the into the gulf the the magnitude of the amount of oil that that dumped out into the gulf it was tragic that part of the gulf of mexico is critical for recreation it's critical for production industries for fisheries um and that followed by disappointment sadness to see uh animals that were you know exposed to to uh to this crude oil and and, and suffering from that you're listening to think sustainability i'm jake morcom in april 2010 the largest environmental disaster in U.S. history struck the Gulf of Mexico, the explosion of oil rig Deepwater Horizon. After burning for more than a day, Deepwater Horizon sunk, taking with it 11 lives, costing oil major BP more than $40 billion, and an onslaught of environmental damage still being felt today. Over the last seven years, the blame game for who was responsible for this and liable jumped back and forth, with payouts being made to certain bodies who brought claims against BP for financial losses in their respective industries. But the blowout of a disaster to this scale goes far beyond a slump in tourism or trade in the region. Today on the show, we'll be looking at can you put a price on the environment? That's coming up on Think Sustainability. Welcome back. I'm Jake Morcom. This is Think Sustainability. Today, we're talking the price point of nature. Can we, or should we, give the environment a monetary value? But before we get into that, I'm bringing back Jesse Fallon. He's a vet and PhD student at Virginia Tech in the States. You heard him at the top of the show. Jesse is a bird expert. Sure, that's my inclination. And seven years ago, Jesse got a call. I was working at a place called the National Aviary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he got this call just after the Deepwater Horizon rig had blown up. We were watching the images on the news and and couldn't believe that we were watching this much oil pour out. Jesse was pulled over to where the spill had occurred, and his job was looking at the effect oil was having on bird species. And not just looking at the ones that had died, but the ones that were still alive. There's a large number of birds that get exposed to smaller amounts of oil, sublethal amounts of oil, and don't immediately succumb. Not all of these birds were soaked beak to tail in oil. Some could have had external oiling and preened it off of their feathers and ingested it, or they may have ingested it in prey items, uh, either oil on the prey or inside the prey that they were eating. But what Jesse and his team found was these birds with only a minor exposure to the spill were still getting sick. In short, 
what we do know is that ingestion of oil can cause physiologic changes in a variety of ways, one of which is by causing oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is when the body overproduces oxygen to get rid of a foreign toxin, which in this case is oil. And for these bird species, this put pressure on their red blood cells, which are the cells responsible for moving oxygen around the body. And when there's too much oxygen, the cells go into overdrive and get damaged, which exposed these birds to things like anemia. So if you imagine if you're going to run a marathon and you have a low red blood cell count, you may have a much harder time moving oxygen to your muscles to be successful. But these birds aren't doing this for sport necessarily. They're doing it for a living. They've got to go out and and catch food every day and move from foraging site to resting site. And if they have a lower red blood cell count, they're still not able to function completely as they would normally in nature. Following the spill, more than 8,000 different species were affected. Bird species, fish, crustaceans, sea turtles, and other marine mammals. It's clear the natural environment was the worst affected by this disaster. But it's the hoteliers, fisheries, and other bodies invested in the region who came out on top in the end. And that's because they could put a price on their losses something that Stan Palacis, my major areas of interest and expertise are within international law and the law of the sea, says the natural environment struggles to do. What the system has difficulty doing is placing dollar values on injured natural resources. Let's assume that prior to the spill, there were five species of fish in those waters. Let's say after the spill... And after removing of contaminants, there's only three species of fish. Well, how do we quantify what cost will be required to bring those two missing species back to that particular environment at the numbers they were pre-spill? This is hard to quantify because in the words of Anna Bugnot... Hello, I am Anna Bugnot. I am a research associate at University of New South Wales. The ocean is a soup Soup of of organic organic matter. matter. Every species has their own part to play but they're also all interlinked. And reducing their worth to a dollar value isn't very accurate and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Importantly, we have different species that are playing the same role. Okay, So if we have something like a disease outbreak, something that targets one species or a few species, you still have other species that play the same role in the community and keep that community together. But Stan says... This doesn't stop some from trying. Do we try to quantify that? The international system doesn't, but the United States system does try. 21 years before Deepwater Horizon, the oil tanker Exxon Valdez spilt into the Prince William Sound waters in Alaska. A year after the spill, the US government introduced the Oil Pollution Act 1990, And under this act... Compensation is also available for bringing injured natural resources back to their pre-injury baseline. This was also a big deal. A very radical legislation. Because it cracked down on the liability issue of these spills. Parties found responsible would be liable for all cleanup costs involved. And it also put restrictions on size of tankers and transport of oil on US waters from here on out. The industry responded pretty negatively to these changes because in the past, 
Parties responsible for a spill have been able to get off scot-free in some cases. In 1967, when 100,000 tonnes of crude oil was spilt into the English Channel, the owners of the Tory Canyon ship, the ones responsible for the spill, were found liable for only $50 worth of damages, compared to the $8 million it took to clean up the spill. And that $50 was just to cover a damaged lifeboat. But one thing Stan is still critical about when it comes to the US system is that there remains a focus on compensation, waiting for the environment to be impacted to put a price on those damages, rather than investing money to make sure events like these spills don't occur again. And this is where Stan says the international system is different because it's focused on regulation. Regulating, is, it is always much easier to regulate something than to create liability and compensation laws consequential upon an incident occurring. Why is it easier to regulate rather than compensate? Payment. Liability and compensation is always more, more, is always more expensive. In the case of Deepwater Horizon, this is very true. Just two months after the spill, an oil spill trust worth $20 billion was set up to pay out those who brought claims against BP. Stan says that this... Dare I say negligence. ...could have been avoided, or the fallout nowhere near as worse, if the process were better regulated. What's an example of regulation in, in this instance, then? For example, in the shipping area, regulation is that a ship must not discharge oil uh, any closer than 50 nautical miles from ashore. All ships... And with ships, also things like double hulls, which are essentially installed to prevent leaks. But in the case of an oil rig like Horizon... Equipment available on contingency should an incident occur. Construction of the rig, safety measures... These regulations, are they established under this international law? Yes, they are. And are they internationally recognised? Only by countries that have consented to be bound by them. And the elephant in the room, as always, is the United States. The United States is not party to most of these instruments. But maybe they should be. After the break, we head back to the Gulf of Mexico, where just under two weeks ago, another oil spill flooded into the waters. And Trump's plan to drill even further into the Gulf. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. On the 13th of October this month, nearly 700,000 gallons of oil leaked out of an LLOG company pipeline into the Gulf of Mexico. Although this doesn't compare to the 210 million gallons that spilt out in 2010, it's not exactly a step forward. But what's raised even more eyebrows is an announcement from the Trump administration from this past Wednesday. I touched base with Stan Palacis from the University of Technology Sydney again to see what he made of all this. Hi, Jake. couple of things. About a week ago, there was another spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And have you also heard the Trump administration will be opening up 77 million acres of the Gulf of Mexico to oil and gas drilling? Oh, God. 
what would something like that mean? A, a scale of like 77 million acres, what, what would that mean? They're just basically opening up a lot more area to exploration and exploitation. Does that mean like, you know, if, if they're putting that up for sale, that means that there would be like potentially more drilling activity in the future? Yes, 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 yes. That's why they're, yes, most definitely. Right. I, when we were having our conversation was, you know, looking at regulation over compensation. Yeah. But if, if you've got the Trump administration coming out and opening that vaster space to potential future activity, like that seems like a backstep, doesn't it? it put it this way, with any kind of like uh, Trump type policy, which is all about big business, usually it's going to have a policy of not having particularly much regulation. If they're interested in providing some kind of environmental protection and some kind of sound regulation, then there's going to be more regulation. So I'm guessing that there's not going to be particularly much environmental regulation. I'm guessing. During a spill, the oil will float on the water's surface. Just like when you mix vinegar with oil, cooking oil, it floats. And a bug knot from earlier. It floats on the ocean as well. The problem with floating oil, however, and what we don't want, according to Anna, is the oil reaching the coast. Even if they happen in the middle of the ocean, they are affecting the coastal environments more because they would travel Mm. to the coast. And if the coast is damaged in some way, that can affect the rest of the ocean. We have found high concentrations of pollutants in the deepest parts of the ocean. In a place called the Mariana Trench. In the where? Mariana's Trench. And where's that? That is the deepest part of the ocean and it's over 10 kilometers deep. And we thought before last year, we thought it was pristine. We thought humans haven't got there yet. But we have observed high concentrations of pollutants. And even in the tissues of organisms, some organisms had a toxicity higher than organisms in the coastline. That's, that's the most, I think, um, a straightforward picture of what we're doing, right? We find our own produce down there, 10Ks down, down sea level. Because what we do on the coast can impact the furthermost regions of the ocean, it's where we should turn our attention to, to solve these problems. Say a big spout of oil were to wash up along the east coast of New South Wales, our first responsibility is to clean it up. But flash forward six months or 12 months, depending on the size of the spill, the ecosystem could still be struggling – And it's during this time that organisms would be going into something called redundancy, which is the idea that... Different animals, different organisms play different roles in a community, in an ecosystem. Some are filter feeders, some are cleaners, some eat those cleaners and feeders. Everyone has a job to do. And even though during a really bad spill, most of the animals would die... The idea of redundancy is that over time, these organisms will bring an ecosystem back to normal and recolonize it. It's what they're made to do. However, particularly in the Sydney region, we haven't made it that easy for them. Propping up seawalls to prevent against flooding, building ports for ships to come in and out of. By doing that, we've built over their homes, 
stripped shorelines of oysters and other organisms that help in this process of redundancy. But Anna says we still have time to turn this around if we focus on bringing back complexity and biodiversity to our coastlines. If it comes to something like a port that's already been designed, that's already been implemented, you can't. I can't imagine you can like just necessarily retrofit that, and then it's more environment you can embracing. Totally retrofit oh, you that. can. You can totally retrofit that. How? And that is actually, there are now companies that uh, produce modules that you can attach around pilings, you can attach to seawalls. Some are looking at using 3D printers to make curved panels that have intricate cuttings and crevices and pits on them that we could wrap around underwater pilings, which are the big poles that hold up things like ports. These detailed patterns would attract algae and other microorganisms because they mimic the habitats they normally nestle themselves into. You are increasing the structural diversity of that, of that pylon. Anna says not only would these panels attract these organisms and encourage biodiversity, they're also cheap to make. Earlier, our environmental law expert, Stan Palacis, said... What the system has difficulty doing is placing dollar values on injured natural resources. Well, what if putting a price on the environment isn't so much about giving a bird species a dollar value, but instead looking at how much it costs to try and keep their ecosystem alive? If all animals in an ecosystem are interlinked... Different organisms play different roles in a community. ...then what we do to conserve algae will affect these birds. And if they're ultimately the ones bringing a place like the Gulf of Mexico back to some sort of ecological balance, isn't our money better spent on keeping them alive and healthy rather than paying them out for what they've lost? This has been Think Sustainability. If you like the show, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Sustainability. And while you're there, why not leave us a review? It really does help us get discovered. Thanks to Ellen Liebeter and Miles Herbert for editorial guidance on this episode. And Miles Herbert also helped produce it. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology Sydney. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.